The minute you put on that uniform, you're handed dignity and honor on a silver platter for something you haven't earned yet. So don't tarnish the badge. Remember that there are people who lost their lives. Those in the fire service, we call them the heroes. We're the guys that go out and do the job. I'm not a hero. That guy that's laying in the ground who gave it all because of the mere fact that you're living and breathing and enjoying that honor and dignity, don't tarnish the badge. You go out and now you make it better. You build on those guys who provided you the ability to enjoy that dignity and honor. And now you add to that. the Firehouse Logbook Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Dawson, and I've had a lot of firsts in this uh, in this endeavor of doing this podcast, um, and one of the firsts with this episode is I've never had on the, the podcast a repo man, <laughs> and uh, as it turns out, uh, my guest today, uh, before his fire service career, was a repo man, and I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit about that because that's an interesting profession, I'm sure, and we've seen some reality shows around it. But this gentleman's had a lot of other firsts in his career, too, uh, in, the, in the fire service, and uh, we're going to chat a, bu- a bunch about those. So please welcome to the Firehouse Logbook Podcast now, Melvin Stone. Melvin, good to see you. Good to see you, too, Robbie. Great talking well, thanks to for you. Being, thanks for being here, and we, we've got to know each other a little bit uh, through my day job and working for NFPA and, and traveling around, and we met in Florida, and you recently retired. Uh, over the COVID lockdown, shutdown, whatever you want to call it, from the Division of the State Fire Marshal's Office. So uh, how long have you been officially retired now? Uh, Officially uh, a little over a year and a half, uh, February 26th of 2021. And as you stated, due to COVID, uh, we were unable to have a ceremony. And uh, as you're aware, my boss, uh, Julius Hallis, the great Julius Hallis, was hell-bent on saying, oh, we can't just let you walk out the door quietly and... uh, so when he retired, he wanted us to do something jointly, but uh, a little over a year and a half. Yeah, that was that was a good time, and I appreciate the, the opportunity to come down and celebrate that with you guys, you and Julius. And Julius has been on the podcast. He was on the last episode, uh, where and I got the chance to talk to him at the FFMA conference a few weeks ago on his last hoorah, just literally hours before his official retirement. But uh, he's, he's a great guy, too, and I, I, I when I looked, at the time in Florida, I always saw you two together and it was really a true team at the division of state fire marshal's office. And I think that shined through in, in Julius's leadership and in your leadership within the office as well. And I'm sure we're going to get into that, but let's, let's get back in the way back machine and, uh, and talk about how you got into the fire service. Uh, you got, you came on in with the city of Tampa, Florida fire department back in what the early eighties. Yes. 1981 to be exact. Uh, March 16th. 1981. And, uh, so how, how did you, what, what brought you to that? I mean, did, was there a fire service history in your family or did you know somebody? How did, how did you come in contact with that? Well, no, there wasn't a history. Um, you know, I was actually employed by the local power company, Tampa Electric Company. And, uh, of course I was out of work, lost my job. And, um, and I used to be ashamed to mention that, but as a union steward, I was pretty aggressive, pretty assertive. And uh, fought for the rights of other folks that I felt were being wronged and um, just being abused. Uh, but, you know, I, I did bring a little a bit of that on myself, so we might want to edit that out. But, you know, I was out of work, and one of my buddies had got, um, he left Tico, and we were always just questioning him, Neil, why would you leave Tico? I mean, we're making twice as much money as the world. He goes, man, the fire department is the best job in the world. And so me being an out-of-work person, uh, I took him up on it and was looking for a job to feed my family, to be quite honest, and got hired and uh, don't regret one minute of it. And so that's how I actually came to be, uh, of course, employed by the fire department. Well, I, if, if, unless it's unless it's over under under your objection, I'm going to leave that little piece in there about you being the shop steward because I, you know, without the details, I it, I think it goes to talk about your character and you were 
a leader within that organization within the shop steward you were standing up for your people it sounds like and uh yes. you just leave it at that and you know management being what management is they they yeah. may not have liked that and showed you the door so uh yeah <laughs> I, I just think that that kind of exemplifies uh the why you were there and what you were doing so yeah so what was uh what was coming to tampa fire like in uh, 1981 well it was different it was um you know, I touch on a subject that, you know, we try to shy away from, but there weren't many African-Americans in the fire service. And so there was a little bit of resistance, you know, to this day, I don't understand why. I mean, I do, you know, quite honestly, I do, but I just didn't understand the, the makeup of why would you not like me being on your team because of the complexion of my skin? I mean, I just, I, again, it didn't compute. So, but I understood it because my parents prepared me. And uh, but it was different when I say different. Uh, the majority of the people were very kind. The majority of people were very supportive. And so they encouraged me to take advantage of all the opportunities. Uh, I started learning about camaraderie. And I mean, from a business perspective, uh, in a working environment where you depended on your brother, you depended on your coworker. Uh, and, and you understood the importance of knowing how to operate every piece of equipment on that unit uh, and, and, and the seriousness of what you were getting into. So uh, then it was fun. I mean, again, I was a young man in my 20s and I'm, you know, I was just over the moon that I can come to work for 24 hours. If we don't get a call, I could sleep. We had a gym. I could work out. Uh, I mean, it was just I just said, I done died and went to heaven. Thank you, Lord, for getting me out of that power plant, you know, which leads up to the, the other part that you mentioned earlier. I wasn't making the money I was making at the power plant. I was making half the money. So I had to find work in other arenas, which led me to become a repo man of one of, of, of sorts. I mean, you know. let me just say one of my occupations. I had many right. part-time jobs, but. Yeah, I think as most most every other firefighter who works shift work has some kind of part time job, you know, construction, repo man, you know, whatever the case may be. There's, uh, and, and I, as a young man, if I didn't have some of that part time work, I was more out getting in trouble than I should have been doing. So, uh, so what was it like being a repo man? Just uh, just give me a thumbnail sketch of what that was like back in the eighties. Well, it was it was different, um, but it paid well. Uh, if I can remember, it was like $50 a car. And, you know, back then, three, $4 an hour, that was a day's work. But it was right. dangerous. You know, people would shoot at you. Uh, I never got shot at. I, I, you know, I got guns drawn, but, you know, we were able to get out of there. But it was just, it was unique. It was, when I say unique, you know, the, the, the auto dealer would give me a vehicle. And uh, I, I'd take a partner with me or somebody drive me and we snatch the car and we take off and so you know it was kind of a thrill but as I start having children I realize you know this I may need to do something else because you know what if the car breaks down I get the crap beat out of me I can't go back to the fire station and uh, it's not covered under the pension <laughs> so yeah, you wanted to do something a little safer, like running into burning buildings and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, you know, at least I, I got you. <laughs> were there any uh, were there any skills that were transferable between being a repo man and and riding a fire truck, or vice versa? Did you did you have anything that transitioned one to the other? Bravery is <laughs> not a skill. I think it's an attitude or way of life, but not really. I mean, you know, I had a little bit of knowledge of you know, jump starting cars and I, I shouldn't say it on the podcast, but how to hotwire if it didn't start or somebody didn't have the key. Or, but no, not really. They, the two didn't go together at all. But um, driving the vehicle, yes, it helped in the, my ability to drive a fire truck, you know, yeah. safely and in a hurry. Well, thinking back to uh, to your early days on the, on shift when you first came on to the shift, um I'm assuming you went through some kind of an academy. You get hired, go through some type of a school. Did did that take place, or did, did they say, okay, welcome to the crew, there's your seat, jump on board? Exactly. That's exactly what they did. They actually hired me. And, well, I had a, a four-week orientation. 
basically, this is a truck. This is a ladder. This is how you tie these knots. Uh, this is how we load holes. We did a lot of holes loading, um, holes rolls, just things that were new to me. And then they put me on a rig. And uh, of course, back then, so no, no, no true fire school. You didn't have a, you didn't have a structural building. You went in and pulled hose and did evolutions like that. It was here's here's all the tools and the equipment. Here's your seat. Yeah, they call it orientation. You know, I was out at, I was assigned to training for two, three weeks, I want to say a month, but not quite that long. And then we, we were TDY, but they called it in the day Jerry. They jerried me from station to station. Now, eventually, after about three, four months on the job, I went into the fire academy, but I went on duty. Okay. In other words, I was hired. They put me with, um, and most of us rookies, they would put us with seasoned veterans. In other words, we'd go to stations where they had guys who taught at the fire academy, old timers with 20 plus years who had done a lot of firefighting. So looking back, it was their way of protecting us, you know, and also giving us OJT on the job training. And then within two to three months, I want to say a few months later, I was going to school at the fire academy on shift or not on shift. However, the shift fell, but my days were like Tuesday and Saturday. And so, which I thought was amazing. Of course, I didn't get the full pay until I graduated the academy. I think I was making 20% less than most people. But, you know, in my mind, I had a job. I was feeding my family and I worked 10 days a month. I got a Kelly day every six weeks, which was a day off with pay. And so, again, I thought I had died and went to heaven, you know. Any uh, any calls or incidents you ran in those early days that stick out to you that uh, kind of re- you remember really well or uh, made an impact on you? Oh, there are many, many. Um, I think the one that steered me into the prevention world, I went into a fire and I found a uh, little nine-year-old boy. He was dead on the floor. You waving at Pam walking by. Yeah, so Pam, I saw your wife walking behind you there. Say, say hey to Pam. Okay, she's live in the podcast, y'all. That's, That's Pamela right. Stone. So, um, but yeah, I saw a nine-year-old boy and this, um, I guess it's the neighbor who had went in to save him, who had also perished in the fire. And I remember trying to get in and the captain wouldn't let me go in. I was like, Captain, I can go in. There's a clear path. You know, smoke was coming out of the window. But and I'm thinking, well, they taught us go low, crawl under the smoke. I had my had all my tools. You know, I checked to make sure the floor was solid. And I said, there's a couch. I pushed the couch. I said, I think it's a couch. He goes, no, I don't need you going in there. Let's just wait. And so long story short, when the fire was out, what I thought was a couch was the neighbor who was right by the window who had died. And, you know, that just bothered me. I'm saying I could have went in. I could have saved the guy. I could have probably found the kid. You know, I was upset. You know, why the captain didn't let me go in? You know, I start thinking things like a young man. Was he scared? You know, why is he on the job? You know, but he really was looking out for me because it was bad. I mean, what I'm telling you wasn't. I don't want to oversimplify this. It was a terrible fire, two-story wood frame structure, fully engulfed. So, you know, but you know how it is when you're young in your twenties, you young and dumb and you know, bulletproof. Yeah. Bulletproof. I I can do this. It sounds like that captain kind of made that risk assessment on his own and said, Hey, that, you know, whoever may be in there, we're not going to be able to save them. We're not going to risk Melvin or any of the other crew members to go in and try to save. So, yeah, we about got it out. So anyway, once I did that, um, then came the investigator. And um, I'd seen this, we call them inspectors back then, but they'd come in and determine what, how the fire started, what caused this fire. And that fascinated me because as a young man, all I could see was burnt ash, you know, charred wood, holes in the floor, roof torn up, burnt through, and I'm going, now, wait a minute. You're going to tell me a candle started this? 
How did you? And so the fascination began. I started waiting on investigators and asking questions. Um, and again, I'm moving into a few years on the job. <clears throat> and uh, a lot of guys were like trying to discourage me. Man, why would you? Why would you want to be in prevention? That's lame. You know, that's where they send the lame and, you know, the people, the, the people who can't cut it out here in the field, man, you're, we want you on the, on the unit. We want you on the rig. And I guess I'd had enough, and I don't want to say had enough. That's not a good word, but, you know, I'd saved a bunch of folks. I'd resuscitated a lot of kids, you know, so, you know, the thrill of the hunt was still there. Was, I was loving my job, but I saw a path to, is the word I'm looking for to, to, to quench my curiosity is like, how can he figure this out? This is fascinating. You know, and I started learning words like depth of char and uh, line of demarcation. And like, what does that mean? So I went to school and that propelled me into the, the rank of fire investigation. So that that's the one pivot. I had many, you know, strange and different fires, but that was the one that sent me on a path to let me figure out how this is done. It seems like that was a, a bit of a challenge, whether it's a scientific challenge or that was just kind of the next thing that interested you is, uh, hey, you know, how did they do this? And I want to learn more. And you kind of went down that path. W yep. Was that, a, was that a, a, a literal promotion from, you know, I'm assuming firefighter rank, was that a promotion to another rank position, like a bump in pay, bump in pay grade, bump in you know, uh, position? Yes, it was. This actually was a pay grade increase. And at the time, um, the fire chief was Tony Coniglio, who was formerly the fire marshal. And he was trying to get away from what I mentioned earlier, turning fire prevention into a dumping ground for those who couldn't cut it in prevention or guys who were about to retire out, working on their last three highest years, you know, trying to sweeten the pension or guys who just people didn't want in in combat, we used to call it suppression. And they'd say, uh, Operations rejects. Yeah, operation reject. Just send them to prevention. And so he wanted to change that whole mentality. He wanted, because he felt as the fire marshal that he did that too. He came up late in his career and he realized how long it takes to learn all of the things that you need to learn, not only as an inspector, but as an investigator. Because once I went to school, I realized, these few courses I took, oh, yeah, it opened my eyes. But there's a world of knowledge out there that you're not going to get in one or two years. You know, they rotate you in and you rotate out. And you, He goes, I want to build a, a fire prevention bureau of young men and women who want to be here first, who were not only good firefighters, but who have the skill sets. And I want to educate them. I want those kids. And he used to say kids. You know, that was back in the day. Yeah, I want kids who are hungry. That was his thing. I want you hungry, hungry and thirsting for knowledge. And uh, I remember him telling me, he goes, you know, you're that kid. He goes, you're going to make a difference. He singled me out. And uh, I used to didn't tell that story because I felt like, you know, I'm patting myself on the chest or bragging. But he saw something in me and he pushed me and he, I mean, and I call it the big hook. He said, well, you come on over and in one year, we'll move you to what uh, was then an assistant inspector, which was, and if I remember right, it was like a three or $4,000 raise. It was just significant. So, you know, and, and back in the day, you know, five, $600 a month, that was life-changing money. Yeah. Uh, what, what year was this that you made the transition from, from riding fire trucks to doing the inspector or investigator job? In 84. They, uh, I was assigned as the 24-hour investigator, and uh, which gave me jurisdiction over the whole city. As you know, in the fire service, you're assigned to a station, which is assigned to a district. And the city of Tampa was divided into four districts. and But as an investigator... You had the whole city. You had your own unit, meaning your own vehicle. I had my own room overlooking downtown Tampa with a balcony. I mean, I thought I had, again, thinking, man, I thought I had it greater than the fire service. Now I got access to the whole city. They uh, they gave me a gun <laughs> to make arrests. Uh, but well, let me, I'm leaving out a very important piece. 
back in the day, they made us deputies. We were special deputies who worked under the sheriff's jurisdiction or under his authority. And so we had to take uh, like a 40-hour, no, it was like almost a month-long special deputies course, you know, and got into the laws of, uh, and I, I see I'm moving on here and my camera looks blurry, so I'm trying to be still. <laughs> no, you're good. Okay. Yeah, I'm just I'm just recording the audio, so it uh, makes it a little okay. bit easier on the edit side. Okay, good, good. But uh, so anyway, we went to the special deputy school. And of course, um, I got really interested in that. I started learning a little bit about law enforcement, and uh, that was interesting. But uh, then being assigned as an investigator, having the ability to, to now go to multiple fires and learn so much, and that just spawned my desire to learn more. And, uh, and, and within two years, I was a full, what they call it, a full investigator. So it was equal to a captain's pay, which understandably in five years, I doubled my salary. I, you know, so to me, I thought I had made it. I wasn't ever going to leave. I wasn't ever, I didn't want to get promoted. I mean, I, I just wanted to do this job. And of course that didn't pan out because then they brought me off shift and brought me so up. That, that, that- that first investigator, you mentioned it was a 24 hour investigator. So you, were you on a, a shift, a 24 hour shift and you work in the same type of rotation as you were in the engine? Yes. You, there was a 24 hour shift investigator on all, every shift. On every shift. Yeah. I was the a shift investigator. I was investigator one, a shift and, uh, did that for almost a year and a half. And then I moved up to, on my second year, they brought me up as a 40 hour arson investigator because again it's that was supposedly an honor you know we need you up here now with the big boys doing the big things and uh off to day work with you yeah and then that's (laughs) when i just i i loved it i was really being challenged i was really learning the detective side of the work we call it gumshoe walking the streets neighborhoods surveys knocking on doors uh and during that time frame, the new fire marshal decided to do away with the shift investigator because, and I left this out, but the shift investigator would investigate the fire, determine if it was arson or accidental. And then if it was arson, it would be assigned to the arson unit whose their specialty was arrest and finding the arsonist. They were the day work guys that were they, on the 40 they hour were week. guys. Okay. Yeah. And uh, we didn't really pursue accidental. If it was a toaster or whatever, coffee maker, we just, a one page, I call it a one page check the box sheet and file. Investigation was more in depth. And so that's kind of a, I hope that was a thumbnail of my two years. So from 81 to 86, I went from firefighter to full-fledged investigator in five years. Wow. And I, 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 being at your retirement celebration a couple of months ago, I heard a lot of, a lot of interesting stories, um, one of which was that you were – was that then a promotion to what they called the uh, public affairs officer? Did you get that position in the, as that role too, and did you keep the investigation job? Or, or tell me about that public affairs position that I heard about. Well, the public affairs was the department spokesperson before they would have, before I took that job, and no, I wasn't the first, I was the first black uh, public affairs officer, actually first black spokesperson for the city of Tampa. And, um, but that particular job was a lateral because now I'm an investigator, I'm having fun, and one of the guys tapped me, the fire chief, Bill Austin. He says, I think you need to apply for this. This will round off your career. And, and, and here I go, Robbie. I'm going, man, I'm an investigator, man. I'm, I'm living life. I got a car. You put me in front of a camera? You don't want yeah, to put me well, in front of a camera? You know, well, they said, we've seen you stand there and sit on the witness stand. We think you would do good. We think you would do good. So a couple of my old chiefs told me this would help round out your career. And I'm going, well, how this Help me round out my career. It's a dead end job. You're a spokesperson. You, 
You say uh, fire occurred on the da 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 address, single story wood frame structure located on the north side of street facing south. I mean, I'm thinking, okay, after a while, anybody can do this, but they convinced me it was more to it than just that, and that you know there was community involvement. There were preparing press releases. There, there was a little more to it. And they wanted me to train or at least compete for it. So I competed, and of course, I got the job. And thus began my role as public affairs officer for at least two years. I did that for two years, but I wanted back. I said, okay, I've done this. This is great. Uh, I think my boss, and no one I say this now, he never said this, but I think, as I mentioned earlier, we were going through a transition you know, we're trying to bring people of color into the department and he wanted to showcase people of color who not only had the ability to do the job, but here we got a guy doing this. And so uh, he thought I fit the bill. Now, again, he never said these words to me, but now as I'm an old man, about 70, <laughs> looking back. In that role, did as as that, I call it the unofficial um leader for racial equality or racial inclusion, whatever, did you ever feel like you know, you had added pressure on you being the first African-American person filling that role or in that kind of position? Or was it just, I, I'm here to do the job and it and moved on from there? What, what, what was that like? Well, you know, absolutely. It was that at first. I'm just here to do the job. You know, I was raised by parents that taught me the complexion of the skin of the man doesn't make the man. You know, you work hard, you do your job. And you should be treated like everyone else. But I soon realized that was not the case, that there was a community of folks, my folks in particular, African-Americans who were so proud of me. I mean, I'd go places and they'd say, oh, man, you really did good on that interview. We really were so proud of you, man. And you just keep doing that. And anybody bother you, you let us know. And I was like, whoa, 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 what do you mean? Bobby? You know, so I quickly realized that I was carrying the torch. And then it really made me appreciate not only those who've gone before me, because I, I accept the fact that I am standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, white and black. You know, I told my kids, I said, you know, the white man fought white man so black man could be free. That's the true essence of the Civil War. So that you need to you need to know that. And and so when you're given an opportunity that you should take full advantage to showcase your abilities. Not that you're better than anybody, you stick your nose in the air. It's just, I've been given an opportunity. And for me, my family is very spiritual. I've been given this opportunity by God. So you say, oh, that's hip, that's hip. But hip is what's happening today. I took it more as this is an opportunity to inspire. Now I can inspire younger people and not only people who look like me but those others and i say white caucasians who were maybe were lied to that you know blacks are inferior black so now i can inspire a whole new generation to away with those myths you show up every day bring a good attitude do your job treat people nice and you know what the world will then accept and realize you know this guy's just like me so Yes, it was a burden. I didn't realize it at first. I guess, again, being young and naive, happy, and then you show up and then the whole world is telling you, and I say my world in Tampa, not literally the whole world, but my world was like, we're so proud of you. And it, it, that's when the light came on. Well, that's, that's good. And I think, uh, again, it speaks volumes to the character of the man, you, you and not, uh, you, you're there to do the job. And oh, by the way, this other, this other kind of social thing is out here uh, and all yes. of a sudden it hits you and you keep going. So uh, kudos for that, man. Great, great commentary on, uh, on that. And I appreciate, appreciate that insight. I mean, we've, we've talked a bunch and this is one of those topics that's never come up just mostly because we're in a much more social setting than, yes. than here. So I appreciate you sharing those thoughts. So now you're, you've the, you're the public affairs officer. You said you, you, you kind of checked that box. Where did you go from there? Well, um, I came back to investigations. Um, like I said, after a couple of years of that, I realized, okay, I need to 
come back to my love because I, I missed this. I really missed this. But I couldn't come directly back because of the time frame. Uh, they said, well, we need you in inspections now. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going, man, y'all just passing me around like a, a ditch rag or something. No, no, no. We're rounded, rounding you off, Melvin. You're getting a rounded career. That's what it is. Yeah. That's exactly what they mm-hmm. said. We're broadening your horizons. <laughs> and so... And I, and, I, and I appreciate it. Like I said, now looking back, I appreciate it. They said, well, there's no opening, but there's an opening in inspections. And our inspections division was, uh, it was um, divided into two sections. Okay. We had, well, it was really more, but it was the existing inspections division. And there was the new construction division slash plans review. And of course, public ed, you know, public affairs, they moved from the fire marshal's office where I answered directly to the fire chief. But of course, I told the fire chief I was ready to come back. So, of course, the fire marshal said, I don't have an opening in investigations, but I do have one in inspection. So I was assigned to the uh, existing construction division and I went out and did uh, fire safety inspections for probably a year and then they told me we got an opening and back in investigations but the new chief bill austin decided that well that special deputy certificate you had a few years ago we don't want to use that because we're issuing you a gun we're assigning you to a, a, a division with the highest level of liability yeah on a red ring and the fire truck is dangerous but we're giving you a firearm. You have the right to use deadly force. You could take a human life. You're putting people in jail. You arrest. He goes, I need you to go to the police academy. So he changed our whole division where all future investigators and current investigators needed to attend the, the police academy. Well, you know, I was okay with that. I'm like, okay, whatever, whatever. You're the chief. You said I need to go to the police academy. I'll go. And so I went to the police academy, which was a seven month long uh, program in the daytime and uh, was returned back to my old job as investigator where I stayed, where I remained until my next assignment. Was that uh, your next assignment? Was that the promotion to fire marshal to the, to the, to the boss? (laughs) Well, no, I was assistant fire marshal. I, uh, I did that until, I want to say 89 till, let me think here, 95, 95, I got promoted to assistant fire marshal. Um, and uh, the following year, I was promoted to the fire marshal for the city of Tampa in 96. 96. And, so, and there was a, and a, I'm going to guess, I didn't, I didn't realize all the intricacies of investigator and then back to, you know, public affairs, back to inspector, back to investigator. And then I knew you got promoted up to fire marshal, but one of the stories that got shared at the retirement celebration was as the fire marshal, you kind of oversaw the transformation of part of the city of Tampa. Yes. Did, did all of that career path from being a, a jump seat firefighter to the inspector and investigator did, you know, how did that best prepare you to work in that environment of that I'm guessing it was a little more political at that point because now we're talking about, you know, community or urban development or redevelopment and and moving the city forward. Uh, talk about that piece just a little bit. Oh wow! And, and and you're a good interviewer because you're absolutely right. All of those things that led up to me becoming fire marshal prepared me, and I didn't realize it. The ability to talk before billionaires. I mean, let's just cut through the chase. The developers who were developing Tampa, of course, they want it done in a hurry, quick, fast, and in a hurry. I want it, I want it quick, fast, and in a hurry, but I wanted it safe. So the ability to negotiate, to read a room like reading a fire, and people say that doesn't make sense. Well, if you've been an investigator, you know how to read body language. You know how to read people and look at a guy and go, he's lying through his teeth. <laughs> Oh come on! They they don't they wouldn't lie to you a fire marshal, would they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They'd lie, they'd lie, they'd lie. But uh, 
Um, but one of the things I must admit it did do is that it actually prepared me to sit at those tables, you know, to help negotiate and kind of steer a lot of these projects through because my understanding of, of fire and fire safety, a good example, you know, the mayor's primary project was the trifecta and call it the trifecta. Okay. What does that mean? Trifecta is three things. He wanted to connect Ebor City, Channel Side, and downtown together. He wanted to make sure that these three entities work together so that we would bring not only tourists, but we would bring the locals, would all see the ability to go to all three of these things and that they were intertwined. And, and part of it was bringing in a rail system, a trolley system, bringing in cruise ship and channel side, you know, which required massive amount of development. And, you know, how do I say this? The temperament of people, you know, we had the historic district in Ebor City, you know, Latino Ebor, they, they keep it just the way it is. We can't put that fire alarm in here. It takes away from the, <laughs> yeah, but you want to put 300 people in here. So if you want to put 300 people in here, let me work with you. Let me show you how you can disguise or hide that fire alarm system, but you need it in here. You need to sprinkle it. I know it wasn't part of the building in the turn of the century, but we need to protect the citizens. So selling, I call it liability insurance. That's what I, I, I looked at. My role was I need to convince the businesses, the builders, that what we were promoting and selling was liability reduction insurance. If you do this, you reduce your liabilities. And this is why. And so, yes, I was just prepared and I did learn. I was, I didn't have all the answers, but I was really prepared to just stay focused. And part of me, you know, being stubborn, people say, well, you got a great smile, but you know, he's a mean son of a gun. He don't back back. Well, I, you know, I used to get that a lot. I guess you heard a little bit at the retirement too. So yeah, he's smiling, he's standing in that back room looking like I'm gonna hurt you. But so if that's making sense, Robbie, yes, it did prepare me. I, I kind of went down some rabbit holes, but but yeah, it just really helped. It was tough. That was a real tough three years for me because trying to manage all of that, manage the men and women who were actually doing the work, carrying out the inspections, who just didn't have the tolerance, you know, the patience. They were like, you either do it, I'll shut you down, you know, and I'm like, guys, guys, hold on, hold on. That's not soft. I'm not being soft. Let's consult. Let's explain to the people why they need to do this. Let's just talk to them. Take the extra 10 minutes. You want me to come with you? And then that, of course, Robbie, you know what happens. Then, no, we don't want the boss. I can have, no, I'm, I'm not saying you can't handle your job. I will go with you. I will help you. We, we want to shut people down. Now, if they, if they disobey the rules or lie to us, we'll find them. We'll shut them down. But otherwise, let's be a little more patient because we want the buildings to be built. We want the stadium to be completed. We want Ebor City to thrive. We want Channel Side to bring in the cruise ships. We want downtown to bring in business. We want all of this to work together. And so we're just going to have to be patient. Doesn't mean we're going to back down from mandating that you comply it's just we're gonna be a little more patient a little more tolerant i i worked with a guy and we were on a we were on a medevac helicopter together and it was um he, he used to he used to use the phrase high speed detente ah. where, where you, ha you had to go in and you had to basically tell a, another provider you're doing this wrong and jump in and fix the problem to save the patient but you had to do it in a way that they said thank you for coming yes and his, his his, his philosophy was you had to practice that high-speed detente. And uh, I think that kind of plays plays in that role, too, because you got that inspector plans review right there. I got the hammer. I got the badge. I'm going to make it happen. And you as the fire marshal say, well, let's have, let's have a conversation about it first. And yeah. you, 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 didn't tell, you didn't tell that developer anything different than that inspector told him. Right. But you told him at that more calm, we're trying to work together. You get to the same result. It's, it's that high-speed detente. That's interesting, too. Right. And then we, 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 we utilized before it was popular engineered life safety. And OK, let's if, if the code gives us this ability, let's just kind of look at 
what else could we do to help this person? And once the developers, I keep using the word developers, the business owners, once they saw you were actually working with them, because it was a give and take, well, you got to show me your plans, show me your drawings that you're moving forward. I'm not just going to give you an extra 15 days, or extra 30 days. You need to show me where you're moving forward, what the requirements are, you know, to comply. And then what happened I think happened is once they realized that we were fair, you know, uh, and then they all, in the middle of all of this, I created, oh, I say we, we created a new fee schedule. And the philosophy I used was an equitable fee for an equitable service. Okay, what does that mean? Why should I charge a mom and pop barbershop 200 square feet, $25? and charge Kmart $25. It's not an equitable fee for an equitable service. Now, I'm not going to break it off in Kmart either, but I got to use more man hours. I may need to use two inspectors. So that fee may have doubled or tripled, but, you know, I was able to get that pass. And I say we, but, you know, they gave me the ball. You know, I had to go meet with the individual city council members and, you know, I had to meet I tell them the same thing, had the same piece of paper, because government in the sunshine, I'd go all seven. Yeah. And I met with them and we got it passed six to one. I had one guy who later became the mayor who refused to vote for the fee increase because he wanted to know if it was going to come back to the fire service. And I mean, it was it was a political stunt. But I told him, I said, look. You know, I have no control over where the money goes. It all goes in the general fund. Then it's disseminated, divvied up to the different departments based on need. And you know how that is. Budget meetings, you say, I need this, I need that. And then the mayor goes, no, you don't. You, you, I gave you 100000 last year. You only use 90. You scramble in the end, you use 10. So I'm going to give you 80. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Oh, yeah. yeah you don't so, use it, you lose it. So anyway, yeah, but that, that that prepared me. I think my career prepared me to deal with all of the challenges that that came. I mean, some I wasn't prepared for, but through tenacity, education, study, and uh, I call it uh, collaboration, you know, communication with guys like you, NFPA. I was on the phone calling friends. Hey, man, have you ever seen this? Can you help me out? What do you think? And so... But we got a lot of businesses done, finished, safe, and on time. Interesting. Well, I, I want to get one more story from you from Tampa before we uh, before we leave the city of Tampa, and it was one that was shared again at your retirement there, and it was uh, it 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 surrounded a fire. It was around the uh, holidays, if I'm not mistaken. It was a tragic fire that was at a grandmother's home and involved the death of her four grandchildren and they talked about how you kind of that one kind of hit you pretty hard and you said we're gonna we're gonna kind of rally around to rally the community and help this grandmother out uh, talk a little bit about that incident and uh, what what went on with that wow yeah that was a very tough one there um <clears throat> the grandmother was katie king um very sweet lady uh tragic circumstances you know the mere fact she's raising grandkids you know that tells you a little bit yeah. um and she lost them all in a fire, lost them all. And she, I just, I remember her just being so distraught, broken. And, 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 and I, we tried to console her and just, she goes, I want to give them a proper burial. I don't know how, what I'm going to do. I don't have this. I don't. And so we just told her, Miss King, don't you worry about a thing. You know, don't you worry about a thing, you know, because I, I mean, what, what do you tell somebody? I mean, what do you say when they lost all their grandkids? They're the provider for no fault of their own. They're, I don't want to use the word stuck, but they were challenged with this responsibility, lost the house. And it moved me. It moved me because she lost everything, house, kids and everything. And she shared some of her stories, some of the things that meant a lot to her, you know. And uh, so we rallied the community <clears throat> and a couple of funeral homes. Uh, and I have to say, I give George Steinbrenner credit because the Yankees organization, when I met with them, 
they ponied up right away. They said, we'll cover the burial. Wow. So, you know, I talked to a funeral home guy and got the quotes and who was handling the bodies and then, then went to the Yankees first. Uh, we had several. And the, connect, the connection to the Yankees is their spring training camp is in the city of Tampa, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? So there's yes. a connection to the Yankees ball club. Yes, they, they, they trained in the city of Tampa. And, uh, of course, George Steinbrenner was always a big supporter of public safety and especially the fire service. And so uh, I went to his folks about this, and they were very generous. said, don't worry, we'll cover the cost. Of course, the funeral home gave us discounted costs. And so then we began moving through the community, uh, met with some of my team, and I say team executives at the fire service, and particularly my prevention bureau, they were all up. They were ready to do it. They were like, yes, sir, we need to do this. And so we started meeting with businesses. Uh, one was um, Rooms to Go. Rooms to Go said, well, don't worry about furniture. We'll, we'll be able to furnish the house. So I, I, that moved me, you know, because we were raising monies too. We had big fundraisers and People were, you know, car washes. We were just, and I went on radio, TV, asking for money, you know, just, you know, pleading. But people were very generous at that time because it was a sad story. And so the city, the city, um, I want to call the redevelopment agency, had a house that they could refurbish for her. And then the city got involved and said, all right, we'll give her this house, Home Depot furnished it, then the community raised enough money where we were able to give the city whatever money they needed to cover the cost so it wasn't like we're using taxpayer dollars to give them a citizen a home. Um, and so that's kind of a, hopefully a nutshell of how that took place. But yeah, that, that was a very tragic and that did something in my spirit to just see a person lose all of their grandkids. I have four grandkids now, and I don't know what I would do if I lost all of them at once. So. Uh, yeah, it, it was a you – know, there wasn't many dries in the house that day. Uh, I, I think Rand Napoli was telling the story or started telling the story. and I think it just kind of emphasized the fact that uh, the way uh, Melvin Stone works is service above self, and uh, the, the taking the point on leadership on that just um, – I think speaks volume for the, again, the, the, the person that's behind the, behind the badge. So, uh, tip of the hat to you, my friend for that. That was, uh, and, and I, I didn't realize the Yankees were involved and I've never been a Yankees baseball fan, but, uh, I, let's say I won't root for the team now, but I certainly uh, appreciate them a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Just, that was a good, that, that, that had a good ending and actually another off topic, but a fun story to me. When I retired from the city of Tampa to come to the state fire marshal's office, Katie King, the grandmother, came to my retirement and sung a song. She did a poem to me. And I wish we would have had that recorded. She's since passed, but that moved me more than anything people said or did. Just she showed. I didn't expect her to come, but. She said she heard I was retiring. She didn't want to miss it. And she was, I can't remember the poem. That's sad, but it, 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 it got me all misty. Boy, I just, I remember standing there. I'll be doggone. I, I didn't do this for recognition. I did this because I was moved. Yeah. And, uh, but anyway. Wow. That's impressive. I didn't realize that either. So that's another, another new story there. Well, that brings up a good point of a transition. You left city of Tampa and went off to the state fire marshal's office. How did, uh, how did that transition occur, and uh, did they recruit? Much like the other positions you had, did somebody from the state fire marshal's office say, hey, we need you to come over here and help round out your career yes. at the state <laughs> now? How did that happen? You're exactly right. That's exactly what happened. At the time, uh, well, he was the treasurer, Bill Nelson, who later became Rand and became senator from Florida. Uh, his team wanted to recruit me because the Bureau of Fire and Arson had lost their bureau chief. He was moving on to, a, um, I think, agriculture. And so my name came up. And they, they were doing a national search, and someone told them, look here, we don't need to do a national search. you got a guy right down there in Tampa who's 
Fire marshal, he knows inspections, he's an investigator, got the highest clearance rate in the southeast United States. You know, to start putting all this stuff out there, because when I got the call, the only reason I shared that with you, that's what they rattle off. You know, you know my clearance rate? <laughs> you know, you know about e boy. Somebody did their homework. Yeah, they they had everything and so and then they offered they made me as they I'd say they made me an offer I couldn't refuse. They made me an offer back then pretty close to ten, twelve thousand dollars more a year, which again life changing money. I was right at my twenty, just under my twenty years, which I was eligible for a pension. And at forty six, I was forty five. I'm like, huh, I need to at least wait till I can collect my pension. And of course my financial planner go, Well, let me just explain how this works, son. You can collect your pension in three months. The pen, you're going to get all this money for your sick, your annual. You're going to get a big lump sum of money. So that's more than three, four months, okay, of salary. And you're going to get a pension on your 46th birthday that you really don't need. So you can save that. And you're going to be making a grand more by moving. Plus, they're going to give you a $10,000 moving allowance. They're going to pack your house for you. And you get to keep your house and you can rent it out. He goes, so, he said, I'm laying it all on the table, son. You make the call. <laughs> he goes, you make the call. This is a no-brainer. Sounds like I it's told, a hard decision to pass up. Yeah, but I also, the part that you know, Robbie, very well, is political. So I can come up here and all these plans sound good, but I'm out of work in a couple of years. Because when I got here, I was then told Bill was trying to get, he was going to leave and run for Senate, which he did. He was very successful, ran, and became U.S. Senator for the state of Florida. And uh, <clears throat> there I was with the new guy. And six months later, they tapped me on the shoulder and said, bye-bye. You know, you know, it's yeah, so this, so this this bureau chief's position, it's an, a political appointment. So yes. it's not a, it's not a, yeah. So the, you were, your job was literally in limbo at the behest of whoever wrote, had that political office. Yep. And wow. so uh, I said all that to say, you know, it turned out well, you know, at first I didn't like it, but after almost three years, they told me, thank you. Nothing to do with your service, nothing to do with your skills or your talent. Or it's just, we're moving in a new direction. We're changing the philosophy. No problem. Thank you. Well, subsequent to that, the University, Florida A&M University, which is a historically black college and university, they hired me to run their space utilization and analysis program, which that big title is just like, what? But once they explained it to me, it basically I worked with the, the safety division to make sure that all of the space in the categories were utilized properly. And so I don't want to get too deep into that. But while I was bureau chief for the Fire and Arson Bureau, uh, there was a bomber who came through FAMU and was placing bombs, you know, a devout racist, and he was bombing the campus. So after the second bomb, we were able to track him down. My unit, we found him, and of course, Lombardi is now doing time in the penitentiary for the rest of his life. Uh, so in a way, fam, you was like, man, you, <laughs> they letting you go. <laughs> we, we owe you. No, you don't owe me. I just did my job, but they knew I was looking for work. And so they hired me in. It was very good to me for six years. And subsequent to that, then I got another phone call. Seems like all my jobs, I get a phone call. The TCC, Tallahassee Community College is looking for a coordinator, director to run the fire academy so i said hey, that sounds like fun and of course i applied for the job and got it and realized that they didn't want somebody to run the program they want someone to develop start design the uniforms design the badge they create it and so, so this was coming right out of the ground this was brand a brand new position a brand new program that brand new right? program right out of the ground which was the toughest job i ever had but the most fun I ever had. Uh, so, and I'm, I'm moving through all of this to say after 10 years, then I get a call from Julius Hollis 
when his assistant director left, uh, and you heard him tell that story, he, um, they were going to do a national search. You heard him, and he says, hey, 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 I got a guy right over here at college. This guy's a fire marshal. He's been a bureau chief. He started a freaking fire academy from scratch. And why do we need a national search? He can run. He can run this department. He can help me. So that's how I ended up with Julius. And uh, we were able to push through a lot of good things, a lot of good legislation, PTSD, field, cancer, volunteer fire grants. So just, just, just we, we were able to do a lot of amazing things. And I'm just so blessed that he tapped me because he was the best boss I ever worked for. And I had some good bosses now, but he was absolutely the best, bar none. And I had, uh, I think it, it was kind of jokingly mentioned at the retirement celebration. I don't, I don't know how much of a joke it was or how much it really was just based on the conversation Julius and I had and you've, I've had, you and I have had in the past of somebody mentioned you always saw Julius and you always saw Melvin standing right behind him, kind of like his secret service detail, his protector, his watching his back. Yes. And uh, I, don't, I don't think there was many really big events that I went to in Florida that the two of you weren't joined at the hip in some way, shape, or form. So it looked like it was a great team that Julius brought together, not only for you and, and everybody else in, in that office as whole, but uh, you two were, because you were his uh, second in command, I think you were pretty close to him uh, all the time, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. And this, as you know, Robbie, you know, in the political environment, you know, we have a lot of meetings where you don't repeat what you heard in the meeting. <laughs> and so yeah. I'm gathering intel. And you can't repeat it on a podcast because there's still names out there. <laughs> right. You can't repeat it on a podcast, but you gather an intel. And we were making so many huge and major decisions that, you know, he'd always say, well, come with me. You need to hear this in case I need to sit. Because he would say, listen, and then he'd say, all right, go handle this or go take care of that. And so I found that, you know, if I just, because we did so much work together, I mean, we, and again, I know it sounds like we bragging or patting ourselves on the chest, but we had some huge undertaking. You know, just the cancer, as you know, cancer bill alone. Yep. The decon bucket, simple as that may sound, when they give you these millions of dollars, and you need to figure out what's the best way to disseminate this money to get the most bang for your buck. How many people can we serve? I mean, we kicked around extra bunker gear, uh, scrubber, not scrubbers, you know, uh, extractors, and, and okay, who gets them? We buy double sets of bunker gear, and we're not going to come. So it's something as simple as that. I know it sounds simple, but what goes in the bucket? What you going to do? Why decon? Well, gross decon means we're going to get rid of most of the cancer-causing elements at the fire scene, gross. Gross, the, the largest amount of contaminants we can eliminate. That's the first step. So let's do this. Let's go with these buckets. Let's do that. So something as simple as that sounds like green buckets that we got joked about. That took a lot of work, a lot of energy, a lot of input. And then, of course, you got the legislature looking at you. All right, we gave you this money. You better use it. You know, and then you got the audits, the oversight. You know, you know, you've got an idea what I'm saying. So there's pressure. The microscope, the microscope that comes along with it. Yeah, and it's pressure. And, you know, of course, Julius relied on me, and then I relied on others. You know, it's not just me, but then the people under us, we're going to make sure. And damn Melvin, he's nitpicking again. He's asking questions. Why this? Why haven't we gotten this? And why haven't we gotten buckets to this end? And so, but anyway, that's just one example of why we just stayed close because we were moving so many projects through the pipe that it was just, just too much to keep up. Yep. Well, Melvin, I, there's, there's probably 50 more stories I'd like to delve into here. Uh, one includes why I call you Marvin and you call me Randy. Well, but uh, we, we, that, just, that just tells me we need to do this again one day and let's let's do it in person. Um, one of the things I do want you to kind of maybe touch on is you, you haven't totally disengaged from the fire service. You, you've retired from this from the state fire marshal's office, but certainly you're still engaged in this little group called the retreads that uh, yourself and Julius and John Pascalone and Rand Napoli and others are involved with, I think is, uh, 
keeps you engaged and I, you know that that passing on of the 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 40 years of knowledge that you've gotten in your mind to those young folks coming on board today what 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 are you doing with yourself these days within that regard and and uh what's keeping you busy other than those four grandchildren well actually the retreads yes i do stay involved with them uh you know we we donate to charitable causes and uh, we do provide advice to i see the up-and-coming leaders in the fire service. I've talked to the fire marshal from down south. Um, they call and ask questions. So I'm, we're act. I say we're the retreads, but I'm actively engaged with those. I told them I'm only a phone call away, and I'm also a. I'm serving as an adjunct professor at the college, at the academy, and so they've asked me to just kind of stay on as an advisor, a counselor, uh, review the programs every quarter, every semester, every class to make sure that when uh, they were implemented, that are they still relevant? Do they need to be amended? Do we need to, to take things out? What do we need to do? So I evaluate every class, every program. I kind of audit the instructors just to see if they're covering the materials properly. What can they do better? So that's how I stay busy, but that's that's not an everyday thing. It's when I want to go and or they'll call me and say, hey, we need you to come. Like right now, they're trying to implement a uh, a combination firefighter slash paramedic program. So I'm working with them on that. Make sure we get gotcha. that up and running. Like I say, we've been at it for over an hour now, and I want to be respectful of your time and let you get back to that retirement gig. Uh, last question I, I typically ask everybody who's been in the job for a while and uh, – if, if you get the opportunity tomorrow to speak to a group of uh, uh, graduates from a recruit academy, the, the, the new guys and gals that are coming on the job today, uh, what piece of advice do you think you'd give them to, uh, to help them along in their career and make it a 40-year a, a career like you've enjoyed? Well, it's, it's several things I would tell them. But first thing I tell them is that the minute you put on that uniform, you're handed dignity and honor on a silver platter for something you haven't earned yet. So don't tarnish the badge. Remember that there are people who lost their lives. Those in the fire service, we call them the heroes. We're the guys that go out and do the job. I'm not a hero. That guy that's laying in the ground who gave it all, you know, we got this little, I call it the saying, you know, all gave some, but some gave all. And so because of the mere fact that you're living and breathing and enjoying that honor and dignity, don't tarnish the badge. You go out and now you make it better. You build on those guys who provided you the ability to enjoy that dignity and honor, and now you add to that. I'm going to record that one and keep that as a separate episode, that last uh, couple of minutes there, because that's, uh, again, some profound statements for sure. Yeah. Uh, anything else you want to you want to share with the the audience? Uh, you know, I, I got another ten hours of recording ability here, but okay. I, I know we we got other things to do. So, anything else you want to share or want to cover? I, I, did, I do want to get back together with uh, you and John and Julius and the rest of the retreads. Maybe uh, maybe the next time we're all in kind of the same neighborhood, we can get together and sit around a table and do this in person and uh, chat with that whole crew together. So, uh, anything else you want to talk about uh, to share? Well, I, the only thing I like to add is that the work that you do there at NFPA, uh, and I think the work of the National Fire Protection Association, is uh, it's immeasurable. That we really can't put a dollar figure on that. I mean, the technical working groups, you know, the work they put into developing codes and making sure that they're streamlined, and, and maybe streamlined is not a good word, but that they are applicable to the current environment. I think that's so important. And I think the work that you do in terms of making sure that the cities, the states understand that is um, worth its weight in gold. So I thank you for the work you do at NFPA and thank you for this podcast. And I hope I, you know, I did you proud. Absolutely, man. That's it's all about telling the stories and I got a bunch of them on here now. And uh, that NFPA pieces, I'm, I, you know, much, you know, I, I don't do, I can't do anything with the standards development because we're prohibited from it from as an employee, but it's uh, getting folks like yourself who, who have been in the trenches and enforcing the code and know what the problems are and the challenges and the way to put it in words 
to make it right. So, uh, you know, that's part of my job is to encourage people to get involved in that process. So, uh, again, I'm just the, I'm just the coordinator. I just kind of point people in the right direction. So, uh, I appreciate you, Melvin. Yeah. Well, you're doing well, though. Let me say that. Yeah. You're doing well. Well, thank you. Robbie. Well, that, uh, again, thanks. Uh, thanks, uh, Melvin Stone for joining me. Um, yeah, if you if you're interested in getting to touch with Melvin, just drop me an email at firehouselogbook at gmail.com and make sure you follow follow along on Twitter and Instagram at FD Logbook or FD Logbook Podcast. There's a handle there. And uh make sure you hit subscribe and uh, rate it. And uh, we're on all the all the podcasting platforms now. So listen wherever you wherever you get your podcast. And uh last tip of the hat to Melvin Stone. Thank you for your service. Thank you for your fellowship and uh, let me be part of the Florida community once I took this new job. I appreciate you and Julius and the whole group at that office for, uh, for welcoming me with open arms. So I appreciate that. All right. Quite welcome. And thank you again.